Speaking about eyes, have you ever had the experience of having something be right in front of your eyes, but you can't see it? This could, uh, now this could be very well be another guy thing, but if something's not exactly in its usual place, if it's just a little over to the left, or a little bit over to the right, or a little bit higher, or a little bit lower than it should be, than it's supposed to be, to me, it's not there at all. may as well not be there. And sometimes when that happens to me, my voice can be heard to say something like, we have no milk, if it's not in its usual place in the fridge. And then often, but usually when that happens to me, when I say that there's no milk and the milk is just over there somewhere else, another voice will be usually heard in my ear that'll say, it's right there in front of your nose. That'll come from my kids or my wife. We sometimes have trouble seeing, don't we? And in instances like the one with the milk, it's not that there's something physically wrong with our eyes. It's just that there's some sort of a a perception disconnect between our brains and our eyes. I had a different kind of experience with my eyes and brains, my my one brain, last uh, Sunday afternoon. And you see the result of that experience on my forehead this morning. I was at the playground on Sunday afternoon with my youngest son, and I soon realized I needed to, you know what it's been like outside the last couple days, I needed to run back to the van for some mosquito repellent. And I knew that we had some in the pocket inside the driver's side door. And so I opened the door, bent down, retrieved the can, but in the second that I straightened back up to peek where AJ had gone to, I I forgot that the car door was still open in the same spot where I had opened it. And so my head and the top corner of the van door intersected. (laughs) My, My visual perception had a momentary lapse, and it resulted in three hours in the emergency waiting room and six stitches. Anyways, I I give that story for two reasons. One, now I won't have to explain my forehead to everyone as you leave today. (laughs) And two, it illustrates the fact that perception and vision is important. Which is exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make here in Mark chapter 8. His disciples could hear and could see perfectly fine. Yet they had a perception problem. In their natural state, they had a vision issue. They couldn't see what was most important. They couldn't see what Jesus wanted them to see. They couldn't understand what Jesus wanted them to understand about himself. The problem with that is that the answer for their need was right there in front of their noses. And they kept missing it. While the disciples' problem can be our problem too. We too have a a seeing problem that can only be rectified by Jesus. And so it would do us well to, to be disciples, to put, our, to put ourselves in the place of the disciples and to learn something from Jesus this morning. I'm going to quickly go over the four different pieces of action here in, in Mark 8, verses 1 to 26. So I encourage you to open your Bibles back there again to Mark 8. And then we're going to come back to them, looking for what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and us. The chapter starts out with a familiar account in verses 1 to 10. If you've been with us throughout this series, we've talked about a a similar incident back in chapter 6. 
where we've also got a big crowd that needs food. And this big crowd happens to be in a desolate place where food is not readily available. Only this time, it's Jesus who identifies the problem. Back in chapter 6, it was the disciples. And Jesus says here, they've been with me now three days. In chapter 6, it was just that one day. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And so just like with the feeding of the 5,000 two chapters back, Jesus is able to feed 4,000 people this time with hardly any food. And again, there's lots left over. And it says at the end of the account that they ate and were satisfied. That's kind of a Reader's Digest version of verses 1 to 10. After that, there's another boat trip. And look who's back. It's the Pharisees again. That uh, scrupulously law-abiding religious group who by this time is squarely set against Jesus. Jesus has already painted them as just in chapter 7, as, as pretenders, as hypocrites. Those who are trying to make sure everyone is clean, yet they themselves have hearts that are hard and are filthy. And now here they come to Jesus again. It says at the end of verse 11, to test him. They try to get him to perform a sign, but Jesus denies their request. Look at verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Jesus didn't come to be a magician and to perform signs from the sky that people could see. He came, Mark chapter 1 tells us, to preach repentance and to convince people to believe in the gospel, to trust in him. To believe in him. The Pharisees have totally missed what faith is all about. Faith that depends on proof really isn't faith, is it? So what does Jesus do? It says he left them and he got into the boat. And so we start to see a few connections between these stories. Here are two encounters. One where Jesus feeds a crowd and this crowd by the way, is mostly a Gentile crowd. They were not his, his chosen people. They were essentially, we could call them outsiders. And the second encounter is with the Pharisees, the, the ones in the know, the, the deeply religious, the insiders. But look at how these encounters end. In verse 9, Jesus sent the crowd away. And in verse 13, he left the Pharisees got in the boat and went to the other side. Interesting, isn't it? The crowd, the outsiders, are, are sent away full and satisfied while Jesus leaves the Pharisees empty, denying the request for a spectacular show from the sky. And so we have two groups. The outsider Gentiles, it says in verse 3, who have come from far away, and the strictly religious Jews, those insiders that have all the rights and all the privileges that come with being the people of God. But Jesus leaves the insiders empty and he sends the outsiders away full and satisfied. But there's a third group that's here during all of this stuff. Who is it? It's the disciples. These 12 that Jesus had specially called to himself. What do they understand about Jesus? 
what do they know? Now the disciples are also insiders when it comes to Jesus, aren't they? They are with Jesus. They have constant 24-7 access to Jesus. They should know better, right? Well, let's see. They should have clear vision. Jesus is right in front of their noses, as it were. They surely couldn't miss it, could they? Well, let's look at this next section. This is an encounter on the boat, and it's just Jesus and his disciples. There's no one else there. And so this is going to be a key part of this section, a key teaching moment here. Look at verse 14 of Mark 8. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This encounter is about bread. And so it kind of ties in with the first section. And Jesus' words in verse 15, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, bring us back to the second section. And so all of this is meant to be taken together. And both of those first two encounters are meant to teach the disciples something. But the disciples, to put it into our lingo, even though they're on the boat with Jesus, they're totally missing the boat. To them, this is all about not having bread. It's about having nothing to eat. It's about the here and the now. It's, it's about the material. But for Jesus, it's all about the spiritual. Leaven, or yeast, might be in some of your versions, in the Bible is usually symbolic for evil, or corruption, or danger. It's the, it's the thing that ferments the bread. And so the Hebrews, back in Exodus, when God instituted the Passover, were supposed to eat unleavened bread. Bread that was pure. And so Jesus is warning his disciples to watch out for the Pharisees and Herod. Both of them, the group of Pharisees and Herod, the king, were opposed to Jesus. And they were dangerous because they didn't believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, be careful that you don't fall into unbelief too. He could see unbelief starting to ferment in his followers. And so he wants to warn them. But the disciples totally miss it which proves that Jesus was right to warn them. They totally ignore it, and they go right back to the fact that they have no bread, at which point Jesus starts to say, knock, knock, you know, hello, is anyone home? He basically fires off a bunch of questions, and, and those questions are bracketed by this one big question that he asks twice at the beginning at the end, verse 17 and verse 21. Do you not understand? It's almost like Jesus is exasperated, frustrated with them even though we know God never gets frustrated. But it's almost like that happens here. After everything that's happened, how could you still not get it? And he goes to their senses. Are your hearts hardened? 
Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? They've got all the tools. They've got all the equipment. Yet they're totally missing it. What are they missing? They're missing the fact that what they're supposed to be seeing is right there in front of them. It's right before their noses. It is Jesus himself. God has, the one that God has provided. He is all the bread that they need. And so when you bring all this together, the issue is that they don't yet, they don't yet see Jesus as the one who can be trusted to provide what they need. They are not believing in the one that is sufficient to meet their deepest needs. And their deepest need is not physical bread. It is the living bread. Jesus is right there with them. And they don't see him with spiritual eyes. They have eyes, yet they don't really see him. They have ears, yet they don't really hear him. They have a heart, yet their hearts are too calloused and and their arteries are too clogged to be able to open up their hearts to understand who Jesus really is and what he can do for them. Even though he has provided bread in in a supernatural way, not once, but twice. Even though there was lots left over, not once, but twice, they still don't get Jesus. Do you not yet understand? How could they forget so quickly? How could they miss him? How could 12 men who are with Jesus all the time not get Jesus? This is mind-boggling, isn't it? Or is it? Hmm. Well, just one more encounter. And here, Jesus is going to do another miracle just to give them another glimpse of who he is and what he can do and what he will do. This is the account that Pastor Wayne read read for us before. After they get to the other side of the lake, some people bring along a blind man and beg Jesus to touch him. And Jesus does exactly that. He touches the blind man. He he takes him by the hand and gets him out of the village. Then he lays his hands on him and says, Do you see anything? Notice there the connection with this question to the question that he asked his disciples back in verse 17. Here he says, Do you see anything? There he said, Do you not yet perceive or understand? So here's the main question of the morning for all of you. Do you see anything? This question connects all these stories. You need to see Jesus with spiritual eyes if you truly want to understand Jesus and if you truly want to be saved. And it all depends on the touch of Jesus to open your eyes to really see Jesus. Perceiving Jesus for who he really is And for what he has actually accomplished for you requires that Jesus opens your eyes to see him and to behold him and to perceive him. The Apostle Paul is a a real-life illustration of this. Do you remember how Paul's life was turned upside down? What happened? He was struck blind and Jesus totally changed the direction of his life from one who persecuted him to one who would become his chosen instrument to, to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. But some of the language there in Acts 9 is so familiar to this passage here in Mark. When Paul is on the ground, he sa- it says his eyes were opened, but he could see nothing. He had eyes, but he couldn't see. And then Jesus sends a man to lay his hands on Paul so that he might regain his sight. 
And just like the scales fell off Paul's eyes, we too need Jesus to remove scales from our eyes so that we can truly see who he is. And later in Acts 26, Paul describes his own mission as being sent by Jesus to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light, that they might receive the forgiveness of sins. You see, Paul saw saw spiritual blindness as the greatest hindrance to really seeing Jesus and trusting him. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 to 6, Paul, again, talks about the fact that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is where? Which is in the face of Christ. So if you're here today, perhaps, and you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I hope that as we've talked about Jesus, that God has been slowly taking the scales off your eyes and, and opening your eyes to see God's Son, maybe for the very first time. For this man, back in Mark 8, Mark touches him, but look what happens. It's interesting. When Jesus says, do you see anything? He The man replies, he says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Almost like trees that are like zombies kind of thing. And so Jesus touches him again. But this time, it says, he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This seems kind of strange. Every every other time Jesus heals someone, the healing is always instantaneous. But this looks like it kind of happens in stages, or that he didn't get it quite right the first time. What's going on? Well, this is what gets me to thinking that Jesus is making it happen this way, this time, to make a specific point. The disciples are at the stage of seeing, but not yet seeing clearly. This man is an illustration of where especially on this first stage of where the disciples are at. They have eyes, but everything is not super clear yet. Verse 17, do you not yet understand or perceive? Jesus is making the point that there's a process in which Jesus is being revealed to them. They can't see clearly yet because this is only part of Jesus' mission, his life. And it's right at this point in Mark We'll see this next week that Jesus starts heading toward the cross. But Jesus will enable them to see clearly once he has done what he came to do. Namely to suffer and to die on the cross and to be raised from the dead and and to ascend to the Father. The disciples would go from having a a non-understanding when they were just fishermen, a blindness, to having a misunderstanding, to having a complete understanding of who Jesus is. But even for us on this side of the cross, we still do not see completely clearly. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. There will be a time when our faith will be sight. We don't know when it will be. And by the way, don't listen to those that claim to know. But all believers look forward to that day with great anticipation. And what a Glorious day that will be when we see Jesus clearly. 
But I want to take just the last few minutes here to, to go back to a point that I brought up at the beginning that, that I believe comes out of this text. The question is, why does it seem like Jesus is more able to satisfy the needs of those that are far away, like the crowd and, and the blind man, than those who are close and who should be able to understand, like the religious Pharisees and the disciples? This is a good question to ask ourselves here this morning. Do we, who attend church regularly, who generally have access to the Bible, and who profess to know about Jesus, do we really understand Him? My fear is that many of us here today might be missing Jesus. We think we've seen Jesus at some point in the past, but he has no present-day effect in our lives. Jesus is just, he's just the right answer to every Sunday school question. Or he's just a a concept, but he has long since ceased to to make any difference in your day-to-day life. Well, I just thought I'd list a a few reasons, and I had a number of them, but I just took the the top three um, just in lieu of time. But a few reasons that this can happen in the lives, in in our lives and in churches. And I list these as a warning for my own life and for the life of the church God has called me to lead, but also for you. I want all of us to know Jesus in a dynamic, living way, not in a static, dead, only historical way. So here are three reasons. Like I said, there are more that that the the close might miss it. One way to miss it is to assume the gospel. I believe this is partly what Jesus is getting at when he asks his disciples how they couldn't remember what he had just done in feeding the 5,000 and then the 4,000. They had no bread, but they forgot who Jesus was and what Jesus had just done. We can fall into the error of forgetting as well. I fear that churches and that pastors can fall into this trap. Jesus is just someone who's acted in the past, but the gospel has become old news. We don't need that news anymore. And so we stop talking about Christ. We stop talking about the cross. And the Bible just becomes a book of of stories and, and a book of moral teachings. Don't do that. Do this. But there's never any mention of the fact that the only way we can do this or that we will not do that is because Jesus has already gone before us. Our lives as as Christians, our, our Christian walk always has to be connected with what Christ has done in saving us. If it gets disconnected, it becomes legalism or work salvation. And Paul says in Galatians that that's damnable. It starts to emphasize our ability to change our behavior rather than our being dependent on Christ alone to change us and to transform us into his image. We must never assume the gospel. One of the lessons of history is that if we assume the gospel for an extended period of time, we will eventually lose the gospel and end up just like some of the mainline churches that that never talk about what Christ has done, or that that see his suffering and his death as too offensive 
for our modern sensibilities. And so I encourage you all to, to hold me accountable to never preach behavior change. Pray more, don't smoke, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal, give to the poor, without connecting it to, to the work of Jesus on the cross. We need to preach those things, but they can't be disconnected to what Christ has done. A second reason that we who are close can be in danger of not rightly perceiving Jesus is that we can just become cultural Christians. This is related to the first one, but I I fear this is endemic in some churches. People, maybe even some of you, the only reason you come to church is because of what what you've always done. That's what your parents did, that's what your grandparents did, that's what your great-grandparents did. But there's no life. And Jesus has no meaning for you. That word, Jesus, that person, there's no vitality in the wonderful name of Jesus. Oh, friends, don't let yourself stay there. My fear in churches is that there are always people who think they are believers, but they are not. And that's very scary because people like that have no reason to think anything has to change. They think they're in, but they've never really understood Christ. Oh, they may have understood how to do it. They may have raised their hand or or walked down an aisle or, or said a prayer. They may even have known what they had to say to get baptized and to become a member of the church but they have never understood that they were a desperate sinner in need of a touch from Jesus. If you're in that situation, if that's describing you, or, or if you are unsure that you have really seen Jesus, I urge you today to, to repent and to put your trust totally in Jesus and not in your church attendance, not in your church membership, not in any other good things that you think you need to do to commend yourself before God. Number three, We can miss seeing Jesus when we are distracted by the world. When we are distracted by the world. Oh, this is a a constant temptation. Right from Satan himself. He will do anything to distract Christians from looking to Christ and to the gospel. And the methods he uses are the allurements of the world. And its fascinations and its fads and its leisures. And its false promises of, of happiness. If he can make the life and the work of Christ fade into the distance or, or become just a blur in the life of someone who has professed to be a Christian, he has succeeded. And before you know it, the affection of the world has taken the place of your devotion to Christ. And you will all but forget what he has done. This is why the Apostle John writes, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then the very last line of his first letter says, Little children, keep yourself from idols. That's what anything that you put ahead of God and your affections is. It's an idol. And our world, brothers and sisters, is an idol factory. True Christians people who have really seen Christ, people who know what they have been saved from, will strive to be different from the world, will strive for holiness. 
Do not get distracted by the world. Do not lose, do not lose sight of what Jesus has done for you in providing the way to God. Well, we could add many more things to the list. But the lesson from this section is to, is to make sure that you see Jesus with spiritual eyes. Don't start thinking that you can live this life with, without a living, dynamic, spiritual connection to Jesus, the kind that comes only through faith, only through, through trusting in Him to give you life and to, and to reconcile you to God. Keep remembering that you too were once far away and that God supernaturally fed you with the bread of life. He has given you eyes so that you might see Christ and to behold Christ and to glory in the cross of Christ and to follow the risen Christ. Just like he was present with the disciples in the boat, he is present with you today in his word. If you are not a Christian, I beg you to to see Christ and to grab a hold of him, clinging to him, repenting of your sins and trusting that he can save you, that he will save you. If you are a Christian, I beg you to see Christ and to cling to him as the one who will keep you until he comes again. Let's pray.